All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 27, for June 2021. Fathers and Mothers of American Medicine, part two. Charles Eucharist de Medici Sajus, Chevalier Quixote Jackson, Hilary Koprowski, and Irina Koprowska. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an Arboretum, a Sculpture Garden, a Nature Preserve, and an Active Cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. Join me for the next 60 minutes or so to learn about four physicians who made huge differences in the lives of thousands of people. Charles Eucharist de Medici Sijou, father of American endocrinology. Chevalier Quixote Jackson, student of Saju and father of American endoscopy. Hilary Koprowski, who came up with the first oral polio vaccine before Salk and Sabin. And Hilary's wife, Irina Koprowska, an essentially self-taught cytopathologist whose work with George Papanikolaou led to the pap smear to detect early cervical and uterine cancers. I initially wanted to include Dr. George McClellan, father of Jefferson Medical College, but I will talk about him in a future podcast. Doctors Saju and McClellan are at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Dr. Jackson and the Doctors Koprowski are at West Laurel Hill. As usual, they all have fascinating stories today on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, Fathers and Mothers of American Medicine, Part 2. Many physicians who are buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery or West Laurel Hill Cemetery are considered the father of American something or other. I talked about a few of them in a prior podcast. Dr. Malcolm McFarland, Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section M is considered the father of homeopathic surgery. Dr. Constantine Herring, West Laurel Hill section of Washington, is called the father of American homeopathy. Dr. George McClellan, Laurel Hill Cemetery section L, is the father of Jefferson Medical College and the father of General George McClellan. And in the news a lot lately in Philadelphia has been Dr. Samuel George Morton, Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section G, the father of American ethnology, a theory long totally debunked. You will hear more about him in July's All Bones Consider when I talk about bad science. Then there is the case of Dr. Charles Eucharist de Medici Sijou, who left a successful career as a laryngologist to study abroad and convert himself into one of the first endocrinologists in the country. He was born 
at sea on December 13, 1852, under the American flag just off the coast of France. He was the son of Count Charles Roustan de Medici Jadoin, head of the French-Flemish family of that name in Florence, Italy, and the former Marie Pierrette court. His father, to whose rank of count he succeeded by decree in 1893, died when he was only two years old. The French de Medici Jadoin branch of the Medici family was created in 1606 as princess of royal blood by Henry IV of France after his marriage to Maria de' Medici, born in 1573, daughter of Prince Giovanni de' Medici, who thus became Queen of France. At the time of this marriage, the Franco-Flemish branch of the de' Medici family was established. Charles rarely, if ever, mentioned that he was descended from royalty or that he was a count. Sajou came to the United States at age nine, after four years of schooling in Paris. In 1862, his mother married Mr. Charles Sajou, S-A-J-O-U-S, who is not titled. The surname by which Dr. Sajou was known, therefore, is that of his stepfather. He assumed it in order to comply with the inheritance laws of California. He also spent several years of his boyhood in Mexico, where he became an expert horseman. He received further education from private tutors before attending the University of California and studying medicine, but not completing his studies. As a teenager in the 1870s, he rode his horse from California to the East Coast. He settled in Philadelphia and in 1878 graduated from Jefferson Medical College. Later, in recognition of numerous achievements in the medical profession, Saju received the equivalent of Bachelor's in Arts and Sciences from the University of France. In 1881, he was appointed Professor of Anatomy and Physiology at the Wagner Free Institute of Science, and in 1883, he became Clinical Lecturer on Laryngology at Jefferson Medical College, a position he held until 1891. Dr. Saju was quite an innovator during those years as a laryngologist. He invented many instruments for use in nose and throat operations. In 1888, Dr. Saju became the editor of the Annual of the Universal Medical Sciences, bringing out five volumes each year until 1896, when the work became known as Saju's Annual and Analytical Cyclopedia of Practical Medicine, which gained worldwide reputation. In 1891, he closed his thriving practice and returned to France to learn endocrinology. Whether he studied with Brown Sequard is not clear, but he was inspired by him. He dedicated his massive two-volume tome on endocrinology to the Parisian physician-physiologist who invented glandular injections in 1889. Sajou stayed in Europe for almost seven years, returning to Philadelphia in 1897 when he was named Dean of Philadelphia Medico-Chirurgical College and its Professor of Laryngology. He also inaugurated another compendium, the Analytical Cyclopedia of Practical Medicine, which was designed for the general practitioner. In 1903, Sajou entered the nascent field of endocrinology with an 800-page book 
the internal secretions and the principles of medicine dedicated to the memory of Brown Sequard. In this book, he claimed that there was, quote, some gigantic flaw in the current thinking of physiology and produced a list of 96 features illustrating its failings. His thesis was that the basis of life was the secretion of the adrenals, which supplied, quote, the oxidizing principle to all living tissue, end quote. He concluded that the most fatal and distressing diseases of mankind have not been mastered because the cardinal role of the adrenal system in their pathogenesis, prevention, and cure has been overlooked. In his system, three glands, adrenal, pituitary, and thyroid, form together the adrenal system, which is autonomous. Disturbance in the functions of this system explained the symptomatology and gave clue to the treatment of most diseases, including cholera, pulmonary tuberculosis, tetanus, septicemia, and hydrophobia, among many others. Hypoadrenia caused asthenia, sensitiveness to cold and cold extremities, hypotension, weak cardiac action and pulse, anorexia, slow metabolism, constipation, and psychasthenia. He felt that deficiency of food and excess work led to hypoadrenism, as well as masturbation and excessive venery because, quote, liquid portion of the semen is rich in adrenal principle, end quote. For treatment in adults, he recommended small doses of mercury, a powerful adrenal stimulant. He also recommended injection with testicular extract and the raw juice of one pound of uncooked meat daily. Nowadays, Siju would be considered a quack by the traditional medical establishment. In fact, he might easily fit into the upcoming Bad Science podcast for this part of his career. The second edition of Internal Secretions was published in 1907. By the fourth edition in 1911, it had grown to 1,873 pages in two volumes. The tenth and last volume was published in 1922. Now, despite its popularity, reviewers for the British Medical Journal in 1903 and The Lancet in 1912 were unimpressed. Quote, so far as the new physiology is concerned, we must confess that taken in bulk, it is rather too big a dose. The arguments seem rather flimsy, end quote. Another critic noted that his book on internal secretions is, quote, marred by the uncritical enthusiasm with which its author endorsed the views of many writers whose statements were not based on exact scientific observation, end quote. They admitted that Siju was a voluminous writer and indefatigable editor. From 1910 to 1922, he is professor of applied therapeutics at Temple University. And from 1921 until his death, held the professorship of applied endocrinology in the Medico-Chirurgical College and Hospital Graduate School of Medicine of the University of Pennsylvania. 
He also held office and membership in many medical and other societies, including the American Medical Editors Association. He was president in 1903. The American Association for the Study of Internal Secretions. He was president in 1917. And the American Therapeutic Society. He was president in 1919. He was also a member of the American Philosophical Society, a fellow of the American College of Physicians and of the College of Physicians in Philadelphia. Other societies he belonged to, the American Medical Association, the Philadelphia County Medical Society, the Pennsylvania State Medical Society, and the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. So Jews published articles totaled 66, of which 29 are from the Cyclopedia and 12 from the New York Medical Journal, of which he was managing editor from 1911 to 1919. He was a synthesizer and a hypothesizer. He was not an original bench scientist. The history of Thomas Jefferson University damns him with faint praise in saying, quote, his major contributions were broad concepts and appreciation of the importance of internal secretions in health and disease. His specific observations were of lesser importance. End quote. Now, Dr. Sajou was unanimously elected first president of the newly formed American Association for the Study of the Internal Secretions in 1917. He opened the first scientific section of the Endocrinological Society of New York, and he wrote the first book on endocrinology. The Association for the Study of Internal Secretions officially changed its name to the Endocrine Society in 1952. Other works from his busy pen, Curative Treatment of Hay Fever, published in 1884, Diseases of the Nose and Throat in 1885. In 1926, Dr. Sajou published a volume entitled The Strength of Religion as Shown by Science. This book was called forth by the moral and religious unrest of our times. In reviewing it, Dr. Charles H. Parkhurst said, quote, This work must appeal to the intelligence of all who concern themselves with the well-being of the individual, the family, and the state. End quote. In addition to being a compiler, editor, and author, Dr. Siju contributed to medical and other leading journals frequent articles on a variety of subjects, the majority of which dealt with different aspects of endocrinology and organotherapy, many having been read before national and local medical and other organizations. He was recognized by many foreign governments. He was a commander of the Order of the Liberator of Venezuela, a commander of St. John of Jerusalem of Spain, an officer of the Academy of France, a member of the Gold Medal Humane Society of Belgium, a Knight of the Order of Leopold Belgium, a Knight of the Legion of Honor of France, and an officer of the same institution. And he received honorary degrees from American institutions such as a Doctor of Laws from St. Joseph's College in Philadelphia and a Doctor of Science by Temple University. Dr. Siju believed that in endocrinology lie greater possibilities for power over life than in any other domain of modern scientific medicine, not accepting chemistry and physiology. 
during the last few years of his life, he rigidly adhered to and repeatedly expressed the view that adrenaline, epinephrine, was of the greatest value as a stimulant in critical cases. Here, he came very close to the truth. He stoutly contended that the adrenal cortex cooperates with the medulla in carrying on tissue oxidation. He believed that the thyroid was a repository of emergency iodine-carrying white blood cells released during times of stress to maintain tissue oxygenation. He also urged that the adrenals afford a foundation for an interpretation of pulmonary and tissue respiration. This view was at variance with that of most physiologists. Although he claimed that experimental results published by them sustained his contention. In 1915, Dr. Siju had surgery for diverticulitis and incurred a very slow recovery, taking more than a year. In 1919, he developed angina, which was quite severe during the first month, recurring daily. This was followed by mild attacks, which occurred at long intervals. His final illness, a massive heart attack lasted only a few hours and was exacerbated by acute uremia. He died at his home at 2043 Walnut Street on 27 April 1929. He is buried in Laurel Hill Cemetery South Section, Section 15, Lot 194, with his wife and son. On 30 January 1884, Dr. Siju had married Emma Bergner, 1857 to 1941, daughter of Theodore Bergner, a well-known civil engineer, 1834 to 1886. Uh, Theodore Bergner is buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section 14, Lot 309. His only son, Louis Theodore, 1885 to 1929, also a physician, was associated with his father in his teaching, practice, and literary work. Louis died on 16 January 1929, less than four months before the passing of his father. He left no children, and thus was terminated the 900-year-old name of the senior branch of the de Medici family of Florentine history. If you live in Philadelphia, you've almost certainly visited the Mutter Museum and its collection of medical curiosities. One of their most popular holdings is in the stack of drawers under the stairs on the ground floor. These drawers are filled with little oddities, coins, safety pins, religious medals, peanuts, children's jacks. The museum has 2,374 of these items. This is the culmination of a man's career. Dr. Chevalier Jackson had dedicated his career to developing the tools and the skills to retrieve small objects accidentally aspirated into the lungs or partially swallowed and stuck in the esophagus. More than 80% of his patients were 15 years old or under. He is the father of American endoscopy. Chevalier Quixote Jackson grew up speaking both English and French. 
in western Pennsylvania on a farm near where there was drilling for oil, which is an industry in its infancy. In the 1870s, drilling tools would become lost and irretrievable in the pits. Jackson observed this happening and fabricated an instrument that successfully retrieved the errant drill bits and other tools. He was in his teens. This was Jackson's first successful retrieval of a foreign body from a tubular structure. He studied at Western Pennsylvania University, now the University of Pittsburgh, and decided that he wanted a career in medicine. While in college, he took up woodworking and the painting of glassware and china, a job which required meticulous skills and patience in addition to artistic creativity. His younger brother, Sheryl's Byzantine Jackson, born in 1870, also became a physician. Chevalier Jackson came to Jefferson Medical College in 1884 and took every opportunity to observe the work of Dr. Charles Eucharist de Medici Sejou and others who were working in the newly established dispensary for diseases of the nose and throat. It was here that he discovered the works of Sir Morel Mackenzie, the father of English laryngoscopy. Mackenzie and others had learned from sword swallowers that if you tilted your head up like a baby bird about to feed, you would have a clear straight channel through the mouth and down the esophagus. Sword swallowing as entertainment has been documented to centuries before the Christian era in Egypt. It was part of street theater during the Middle Ages, but it had begun to die out in the mid-19th century. The best-known North American sword swallower of his time was Fred McClone, a French-Canadian who performed under the name of, believe it or not, Chevalier Clicquot from 1878 to the early 20th century. There is no record of Chevalier Clicquot ever meeting Chevalier Jackson. If you are up to it, there are several clips of sword swallowing on YouTube. After medical school graduation in 1886, Jackson, not yet 21 years old, went back to Pittsburgh and decided to specialize in laryngology, the study of the larynx, or voice box. With his side gig of painting china, especially lampshades, he came up with a substantial sum of $126 to pay passage to London so he could study with Mackenzie. But he was very disappointed to see the crude tools being used by a founder of a specialty, and he determined that he would do better. An endoscope is any device that allows a practitioner to look inside organs of the body without making a surgical incision. The first true endoscope was invented around 1808 by Philip Bozzini, but it was limited by not having its own light source. Variations in lighting systems followed. Candles reflected in mirrors, oil lamps, burning magnesium wires at loops of platinum. It really wasn't until Thomas Edison's incandescent bulb in 1879 that a safe, reliable source of light could be crafted. Using a tiny incandescent light bulb in 1886 allowed Johann von Mikulitz to develop the first usable esophagus scope. By 1890, Jackson had developed an endoscope that he felt was worthy of the name. 
His distal lamp, or light carrier as he called it, consisted of a handmade battery-charged lamp the size of a grain of wheat mounted at the end of an exceedingly thin rod that slipped inside the rigid scope. With another invention of his, a long forceps, he successfully removed a partial dental plate from the esophagus of an adult. Then, using a smaller version of these instruments, he retrieved a coin from the esophagus of a child. He practiced constantly until he had his technique perfected using either his right or his left hand. He was so skilled that when he saw an open safety pin lodged in the esophagus, he could gently push it into the stomach where he had more room to work, close the safety pin, and then carefully extract it. Now, as was the custom of the day, he reported his findings through the medical literature, and then he generously made his instruments available to other physicians. To his horror, Jackson saw that the esophagus scope in the hands of an inexperienced endoscopist produced disastrous results, perforations, infections, bleeding, death. He immediately notified the manufacturer to cease making, selling, and distributing his invention. He then developed elaborate protocols in individual instruction to be certain that his tools and techniques would be used safely and effectively. His students started with direct study of cadavers. They then moved on to removing foreign bodies from a rubber tube which served as an esophagus. Next, it was anesthetized dogs. The dogs were apparently awakened, none the worse for the wear. Finally, under direct supervision by Jackson, the student would be allowed to demonstrate the technique first on an adult and then on a child. In 1916, at age 50, Jackson left Pittsburgh and accepted the professorship of laryngology at Jefferson Medical College, where he worked the rest of his life. At one point, he was department chair of laryngology at all five medical schools in town, Jefferson, University of Pennsylvania, Temple, Women's, and the Graduate School of Medicine. And he served as president of Women's Medical College from 1935 to 1941. These professorships did not involve a salary or an endowment. He had to make a living by seeing patients, but he never turned down a charity case, and he frequently gave money to the families of children he treated so they could buy medicine or even return home. Jackson also developed instruments that allowed him to dilate a stricture in the esophagus, a common problem among children who had swallowed lye. For them, Jackson's procedure was literally life-saving. By the 1920s, a commercial product called Red Devil Lye had made its way onto the market to replace the milder homemade lye of most rural households. It came in a colorful, highly attractive bright red package with a smiling cartoon devil on the front, along with bucolic pictures of a house and a barn. The devil on the box took on somewhat mystical qualities among rural southerners who would protect their property by burying a box of unopened red devil at each of the four corners of their property. This protected them from evil spirits. Don't laugh. 
Many American Roman Catholics attempting to sell their house will bury a statue of St. Joseph in their backyard to assist in the sale. I understand that the statue has to be buried head first, about a foot down. And from 1987 to 2008, the city of Philadelphia lived under the curse of William Penn, assuring that no sports team would win a world championship because buildings were now being raised taller than Billy Penn's hat. This, too, was solved with a small statue. Housewives use lye to make soap, unclog drains, clean floors, peel peach skins, make hominy, hominy's dried corn kernels treated with an alkali. The lye in the eye-catching box looked like sugar. When mixed with water, it looked like milk. When swallowed, inadvertently or otherwise, lye is not technically poisonous. Its chemical activity is neutralized by the time it reaches the stomach, and it has no systemic effects on its victim. But it causes devastating burns to the lining of the esophagus on its way down. The scar tissue shrivels the healthy tissue. The esophagus narrows and stricture forms. Food and eventually liquid cannot pass. After treating far too many children with esophageal lye burns, Jackson determined to go to the source and prevent the problems. For more than 15 years, he lobbied at the local, state, national level and was rewarded when in March 1927, President Calvin Coolidge signed into law the Federal Caustic Poison Act. This required that a poison and antidote label be placed on all packages containing lye and other caustic agents. Their heart was in the right place, but as a retired emergency physician, I will tell you that the instructions were not only wrong, they would probably worsen the chemical burn. They say, quote, if lye is accidentally taken internally, immediately give the patient about twice the quantity taken of vinegar or lemon juice slightly diluted with water. End quote. Now, the combination of a mild acid with a harsh alkali is supposed to neutralize the lye. What it does is set up an exothermic or heat-producing reaction, and it worsens the coagulative necrosis, or dead tissue. As word of Jackson's successes spread, patients flocked to see him from around the world. And Jackson kept improving on his devices. A bronchoscope with a light on the tip will let you see the tracheobronchial tree, but it is otherwise not very useful unless you have other proper instruments, long slender forceps with so-called alligator teeth to grasp the foreign bodies, scissors or punches to take a biopsy of a suspicious lesion, devices to expand in place and open a previously closed hollow organ. Jackson, in invented all of these things. He never patented a single one, and he never made a penny from his inventions. He firmly believed that patents frequently restricted scientific advancement, and surgical instruments should be freely available, quote, for the good of humanity, end quote. Another way he was ahead of his time was to discourage handshaking, which he knew would spread germs. He suggested instead that people bow to each other. He also refused to touch a doorknob while not wearing his thin gray gloves, which he had made especially for him. 
His acquaintances noted that he trusted two things, his eyes and his hands. Michelle the Choking Doll, who preceded Recessa Annie by several decades, was another of his inventions. Michelle was used for practice of his techniques. She now resides in the Mutter Museum. Eight years after his mandatory retirement at age 65, Jackson wrote his autobiography in 1938. It was a bestseller. Although he and his wife Alice were together for half a century, he covered his courtship and marriage in three sentences of his autobiography. Quote, a patient, Josephine W. White, when coming for treatment, brought her sister Alice and their mother with her. They were all charming people. I married Alice. End quote. That's it. <laughs> that is his entire marriage right there in three sentences. His successes were also reported in a June 1938 issue of the New Yorker magazine. In 1941, author Eudora Welty published a short story called A Worn Path in Atlantic Monthly magazine. It concerned a young boy of color who had swallowed lye milk and the heroic efforts of his grandmother to save him. The grandmother's name was Phoenix Jackson. Some wealthy scholars feel that the name Jackson was chosen as an honor to Dr. Chevalier. Now, three times between 1911 and 1917, Chevalier Jackson had been sidelined with tuberculosis. He used this time to study and to write. In 1918, he purchased Sunrise Mill, a 200-acre site located on the Swamp Creek, straddling the townships of Upper Frederick, Lower Frederick, and Limerick. It was his country retreat. The property included a woodworking mill where Jackson continued to build and perfect his own medical instruments. For the 40 years he lived there, Jackson commuted the 35-plus miles to and from the city by car and train. He was very protective of the privacy of his family home, which he shared with wife Alice son Chevalier Lawrence Jackson, another highly accomplished laryngologist, sister-in-law Josephine White, mother-in-law Susan White, and several caretakers. Acquaintances who visited would comment later about the array of instruments laid out on the dining room table before Jackson would carve a turkey. His granddaughter sold the property to Montgomery County in 1971. It was placed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1977. Jackson's name is on 238 single-author articles, 473 articles on which he is a co-author, 12 textbooks, and 6 monographs. His early work had concerned instruments and techniques. His later works expanded on current and possible future uses of his inventions. Early diagnosis of lung cancers, aid for surgeons in massive hemoptysis, that is, blood from the lung, by selectively doing endotracheal intubations into only one main stem bronchus to ventilate the patient and avoid soilage of the unaffected lung. Pneumonography and bronchography using bismuth bisulfite pleuroscopy and thoracoscopy as forerunners of VATS, video-assisted thoracic surgery. Even transthoracic, that is, through the chest wall, removal of foreign bodies from the lung using biplane fluoroscopes. He also did not hesitate to train and hire women whom he treated as equals. While at Temple, 
One of his protégés and then partners was pioneering woman bronchoscopist Emily Van Loon, M-D-F-A-C-S. About 15 years ago, I gave a medical history talk at the Springfield Residence Senior Living Community in Winmore, where my father was an inmate, as he used to call it. (laughs) And I mentioned Jackson in the talk. Afterwards, a woman approached me and said that she had for many years been Dr. Jackson's scrub nurse. Even 50 years after his death, she had nothing but good to say about him, how he treated everybody in the procedure suite equally. In addition to being an excellent teacher in the laboratory and the operating room, Jackson was known for his skills in the classroom. Because of his ambidexterity, he would use a piece of chalk in both hands and simultaneously sketch the lungs and bronchial system. He could also write his first name with his left hand while simultaneously writing his last name with his right hand and was known to draw a circle with his left hand and drawing a box with his right. But he had no true friends. His peers revered him for his work, but described him as sadly unknowable, cold, recoiling, socially unavailable, inaccessible, even phobically incapable of company. He did not drink alcohol. He went to bed at 9 p.m. and arose at 4.30 a.m. for his entire adult life. In 1929, at age 64, Dr. Chevalier Jackson was awarded the Elliott Cresson Medal from the Franklin Institute. But he was far from finished. In 1935, he was nominated for but did not receive the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. He returned to the classroom to teach during World War II. He was still peer-reviewing and editing for the archives of otolaryngology up until shortly before his death at age 93 in August 1958. Chevalier Jackson was interred in a modest mausoleum at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, Ashland Section, Lot 10. He had purchased the mausoleum used in 1943 when the former owner opted to move his wife's remains to another section of the cemetery. It had been built by John M. Gessler's sons, 39th and Woodlawn, for $7,500. The former owner's name was removed and replaced with Chevalier Jackson. At his death, it was estimated that Chevalier Jackson had personally saved 5,000 lives and that people taught by him probably had saved a half million more. The name Chevalier, a knight of the lower order, was the perfect one for this inventor, teacher, physician, scholar, artist, and humanitarian. A young Chevalier Lawrence Jackson, 1900-1961, was an honors student in languages at the University of Pennsylvania. He shared a love of French with his father. He developed a penchant for opera and later became president of the Philadelphia Opera Company. He was also an expert bronchoscopist. He took over direction of the overseas instructional clinics. He was more than competent as a medical illustrator and authored several advanced textbooks on per-oral surgery. 
After World War II, research in throat and lung illnesses, as in most other fields, was increasingly concentrated on cancer, and the younger Jackson contributed much in that area. He died in 1961, three years after his father, and is interred in the family vault. If you sometimes get confused about who created the first oral polio vaccine, I don't blame you. Sabin or Sock? Sock or Sabin? Here's an easy way to remember. It was neither. That honor went to Polish-born virologist Hilary Kaprowski. And since that wasn't enough, he went on to develop monoclonal antibodies and the human diploid cell vaccine against rabies. But contrary to urban legend, he did not invent AIDS. And the woman he married, Irina Kaprowska, was one of the co-developers of the pap smear. They're both buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Hilary Kaprowski was born in Warsaw, Poland in 1916. His father was a textile manufacturer, and his mother was the first female dental surgeon ever graduated from a Russian dental school. He grew up with a love of arts and sciences and had a hard time choosing between the two. He was a piano prodigy and spoke four languages before he ever entered school. He attended Warsaw Conservatory of Music at age 12 and was studying there at the same time he was attending University of Warsaw Medical School, where he met fellow medical student Irina Grasberg, born in 1917. Hillary and Irina married in 1938 and graduated from medical school in 1939, only weeks before Germany's invasion of Poland and the start of the Second World War. Their marriage lasted more than 70 years. After the German invasion, Hillary fled to Italy, where he studied piano at the Accademia Nazionale de Santa Cecilia in Rome. This conservatory had been founded in 1585 under a papal bull by Sixtus V. Irina went to Paris, where she interned in medicine at the Villejuif Lunatic Asylum in Seine, France in 1940. During the war, they emigrated to Brazil, where Hillary initially gave music lessons and concerts. Almost by accident, he became a research assistant in the Rockefeller Foundation laboratories. When he started there, he wasn't even convinced that viruses existed. But his work on yellow fever and several arboviruses impressed the senior staff enough that they helped him find a position in the United States. Irina Kaprovska became an assistant pathologist at Rio de Janeiro City Hospital, where she performed hundreds of autopsies and developed expertise as a pathologist without the guidance of textbooks or formal instruction. She faced discrimination as she tried to build her career, even losing her lab to a male colleague after she took a brief sabbatical. She also made accommodations for Hillary, giving up her career in order to follow him to North America, and raising two sons, both of whom would also become doctors. 
1944, just as Irina was settling into her work in Rio and was offered an assistant professorship at the medical school there, Hillary took a job in New York City to improve his research opportunities. Although Irina didn't speak English and feared having to begin her medical career all over again, she felt unable to stand in the way of her husband's advancement and so accompanied him to New York. Hillary took a position at Letterly Laboratories, which later became part of American Cyanamid Company, which then merged with American Home Products in 1944. A few years later, AHP changed its name to Wyeth Corporation, and in 2009 it merged with Pfizer. While at Letterly, he began to work on improving rabies vaccines and on attenuation of the polio virus. Attenuation is a method to reduce the virulence of a pathogen, but keeping it alive or viable. In other words, you take an infectious agent and alter it so that it becomes harmless or at least less harmful. Attenuated vaccines contrast to those produced by killing the virus. That leads to an inactivated vaccine. Attenuated vaccines have a quicker onset of action, a stronger response, and a longer acting period of activity than inactivated viruses. Until the last century, infectious disease was the leading cause of death in the human population. The combination of sanitation and immunization has saved millions of lives. An antigen, short for antibody generator, is derived from a disease-causing organism and stimulates the immune system to develop protective immunity against that organism, antibodies. Most viral vaccines are based on live attenuated viruses, measles, mumps, rubella, yellow fever, and some influenza vaccines. Many bacterial vaccines are based on the non-cellular parts of microorganisms, usually harmless toxin components separated from their producing cells. All vaccines cause an immune response. They encourage the body to create antibodies and memory immune cells, both B cells and T cells. Poliovirus is only found in the human species, meaning there is no animal reservoir for the disease. The disease polio, also known as poliomyelitis or infantile paralysis, is an infection caused by the poliovirus. It is an enterovirus, meaning that it lives in the gut or intestines, and is usually transmitted from person to person by food or water contaminated with human feces. Up to 70% of those infected have no symptoms. Most people with the disease recover fully. But in about one-half percent of cases, the virus moves from the gut to the central nervous system, leading to muscle weakness and flaccid paralysis. In those with muscle weakness, about 5% of children and up to 30% of adults die. A paradoxically, improvements in sanitation in the late 19th and early 20th centuries led to an increase in polio. Previously, there had been constant exposure to the virus, which enhanced a natural immunity within the population. Small, localized polio epidemics began to appear in Europe and in the United States around 1900. They soon reached pandemic proportions. 
1931, lawyer and politician Franklin Delano Roosevelt was diagnosed with polio, which left his legs paralyzed for the rest of his life. Some contemporary researchers feel that FDR may have instead contracted Guillain-Barre syndrome. In the United States, 1952 was the worst year. Of nearly 58,000 cases reported that year, 3,145 people died and 21,269 were left with mild to disabling paralysis. Those of us who lived through that summer remember the fear that was felt by our parents as children were kept indoors, local swimming pools shut down. The patients with the worst illness that affected muscles of respiration were kept alive by iron lungs, which had breathed for them by alternately expanding and collapsing the chest, drawing air into the lungs. It was polio that actually caused the development of intensive care medicine. Now, in the early 1950s, there was pessimism about the development of a polio vaccine due to some disastrous clinical trials of two experimental vaccines. In the 1930s, John Colmer of Temple University in Philadelphia developed an attenuated vaccine which he tested in about 10,000 children. Five of them died of polio, and 10 more were paralyzed, usually in the arm where the vaccine was injected. Colmer had no control group. Other researchers called Colmer a murderer. Other attempts at finding a vaccine were minimally successful. In the late 1940s, Kaprovsky set out to attenuate the polio virus in successive passages through the brains of Swiss albino mice. On a January day in 1948, Kaprovsky and his associate Norton, after blending the brains and spinal cords of rats that had been infected with the vaccine strain virus, both drank a small amount of the cold, greasy mix. It was a chore to choke down. When he could speak, Norton asked, Have another? Better not, Kaprovsky said. I'm driving. Consistent with the science of that time, Hillary then arranged to vaccinate 20 institutionalized, mentally disabled children. They all did fine. But the scientific world was somewhat horrified by the audacity of what they had done. In the mid-1950s, when cell culture became available, Kaprovsky and Albert Sabin separately began to attenuate polio viruses by passage in monkey not chimpanzee kidney cells. Both succeeded, and the Kaprovsky strains were tested extensively in what was then the Belgian Congo and also in his native Poland and in Croatia. Uprisings in the Congo during the late 1950s struggle for independence made careful follow-up impossible, but his vaccine seemed successful. So did Sabin's. The Sabin strain tested less neurovirulent in monkeys and was chosen over Kaprovsky's strain. In addition, Sabin's work had been financed by the government through the University of Cincinnati, and he did not take any extra money for his discovery, whereas Kaprovsky was working for a commercial pharmaceutical firm, and his product would have cost the government millions of dollars. Sabin and Kaprovsky 
both Polish immigrants, Sabin's birth name was Ibram Saperstein, became professional enemies, but they eventually forgave each other and reestablished a friendship. In the meantime, Jonas Salk, also working under a government contract at University of Pittsburgh, had developed an injectable vaccine based on the inactivated virus, which was being distributed around the world. When Sabin's oral vaccine became available, it quickly supplanted Salk's injection, and Hilary Kaprowski was left out in the cold. Now, while in New York City, Irina took a volunteer position as an assistant in a pathology department at Cornell's Medical Center, then progressed to paid positions and obtained her credentials as a pathologist. All this led her to her greatest mentor, George N. Papanikolaou, M.D., the inventor of the pap smear, a diagnostic tool for uterine cancer. In the 1950s, Dr. Irina Kaprovska was one of his research fellows and became his closest associate. They also co-authored a case report of the earliest diagnosis of lung cancer by a sputum smear. She became a talented teacher of cytopathology and a well-respected researcher and diagnostician, specializing in the early detection of cancers of the uterus, cervix, and lung. She also helped develop experimental cancer research programs. In 1957, Hilary Kaprovsky left Letterly to become director of the Wistar Institute on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. He stayed in West Philadelphia for the next 34 years. The Wistar Institute had been established in 1892 by Isaac Jones Wistar, who named it after his great uncle, Kaspar Wistar. I've talked about some of the extensive Wister-Wistar clan in a prior podcast. Isaac's wife is interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery. His ashes are on display in an urn at the Wistar Institute. Hillary took this sleepy laboratory with four employees and converted it into a world-class scientific institute where there were no departments or walls between laboratories. Both fundamental and applied biology were at the leading edge. He recruited the best scientists available from around the world, and the official language of the Wistar Institute was broken English. After losing his battle with Sabin over the polio vaccine, Hillary switched to studies of fusion between somatic cells and eggs, subacute sclerosing encephalitis caused by measles, and the so-called slow viruses of the central nervous system. It was during this period that he and his lab developed the human diploid cell vaccine, HDCV, for rabies. Now, at one time, rabies was a universally fatal disease once it was recognized and diagnosed. Post-exposure prophylaxis for rabies had been around since first used by Louis Pasteur in 1885 but it was a painful, laborious process. Up to 20 hideously large subcutaneous injections of 10 milliliters each, given over a 10-day period in the abdomen. And side effects were quite common. Because there were so many shots to be given, the recipient literally had a grid painted on their abdomen 
before the shot started, and each day the shot was given in a different square. This new HDCV vaccine, which was made from attenuated rabies virus, was one milliliter given in the deltoid muscle on days 0, 3, 7, 14, and 28, and had minimal side effects. Now, within the past decade or so, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention has actually eliminated that fifth injection. So now it is four injections. I think it is safe to say that Hilary Kaplowski made the biggest advance in treating rabies exposure since anyone since Louis Pasteur. And when the family moved to Philadelphia, Dr. Irina again encountered considerable adversity in her professional life and was particularly badly treated by the heads of department. At Hahnemann Medical College, she finally began to receive recognition for her work. Eventually, she became the first woman to be made full professor in 1964. She was also the director of the School of Cytotechnology. From 1970 to 1987, she was director of the cytology lab at Temple University Hospital and professor of pathology at Temple University Medical School, where she developed and expanded the science of cytopathology. When the technology to make monoclonal antibodies became available in the late 1970s, Hillary founded the Centacore Biotechnology Company to make antibodies that could be practically used to treat viral infections and cancer. The company did not show a profit for its first 18 years. It is now a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson, and its top-selling monoclonal antibody, Infliximab, the commercial name is Remicade, was approved by the FDA in 1998 for the treatment of Crohn's disease. Its market has expanded to treat other inflammatory conditions, rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, ulcerative colitis, plaque psoriasis, and others. And in 2019, Remicade sales were more than $5 billion. The name Infliximab tells you what you need to know about the drug. The last syllable, M-A-B, means it's a monoclonal antibody. The second to the last syllable, X-I, tells you that the source of the M-A-B is chimeric. That is, it's a human antibody combined with some foreign antibody. If the source were pure human, that syllable would be the letter U. If it were mouse, the letter O, etc., etc. The third to the last syllable, FLI, F-L-I, tells you that it works on inflammation. Another example, a Centacore product named Absiximab can be broken down the same way. The third to the last syllable, CI, tells you that it works in the circulatory system. Another monoclonal antibody, Rituximab, works as an anti-tumor drug. So once you know the generic name of a monoclonal antibody, you can pretty much tell what it's supposed to do. Hillary never lost his love of music or of practical jokes. For his 70th birthday, he came to the Institute disguised as a disgruntled gentleman who was angry at the director of the Wistar Institute. He presented piano concerts at the Wistar where he kept a grand piano and he frequently featured his own compositions. 
the Institute became a stop for musicians from around the world, including the Polish composer Krzysztof Penderecki. Koprowski also became a good friend of Ricardo Muti, at that time the musical director and conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Often on a Friday or Saturday night, Maestro Muti had dinner at the Institute. Eventually, Maestro Moody conducted one of Hillary's compositions at the Academy of Music for his 80th birthday. Another reason people enjoyed dropping in on him is that Hillary always kept a supply of contraband Cuban cigars and 100-year-old cognac on hand. In 1991, Hillary got into a spat with the directors of the Institute, and he was fired. He and the board sued each other in federal court, with Koprowski charging age and personal discrimination, and the board pointing to the Institute's deficit and the biomedical firm Setacor, which Koprowski had co-founded. The issue was whether scientists or the university should profit from discoveries. They settled out of court. In 1992, at age 76, Hilary Koprowski was hired by Thomas Jefferson University as the director of the Center of Neurovirology and Biotechnology Foundation Laboratories, where he oversaw the development of new products for the treatment and prevention of diseases including cancer, multiple sclerosis, and hepatitis B. He worked in that lab until he was 96 years old. In the late 1990s, Hillary got dragged into the spotlight in a very unwelcome fashion when an article in Rolling Stone magazine claimed that his experimental vaccine had been made in chimpanzee cells contaminated by simian immunodeficiency virus, SIV, which then mutated to human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, thus introducing AIDS to humans. Hilary Koprowski rejected this proposition with a long, virulent letter to the editor. Fortunately, samples of the supposed contaminated lot were still available at the Wistar Institute, and PCR testing was able to refute the claim. In addition, studies of SIV and HIV sequences show that HIV entered humans from wild chimpanzees early in the 20th century. Unfortunately, these rumors caused reluctance on the part of many Africans to take the polio vaccine, and there was a flare-up of the disease. Over the course of his career, Hilary Koprowski published more than 900 scientific publications on at least 25 different viruses, polio, rabies, herpes simplex, flaviviruses, etc., etc. He was a member of the National Academy of Sciences and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He received awards and honorary degrees from many countries, including his native Poland's Nicholas Copernicus Award, the Alexander von Humboldt Professorship at the Max Planck Institute for Biochemistry in Munich, the French Legion of Merit, awards from Belgium, Finland, and others. But he never got the call from Stockholm for the prize he coveted the most the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine. Dr. Irina Koprowska published more than a hundred scientific papers, and among her many honors and medals, she received the Papa Nicolau Award from the American Society of Cytology in 1985. 
For more than three decades, she also served as consultant cytopathologist to the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology and to the World Health Organization, WHO. The Kapravskus also developed a love for classical paintings, and their home was decorated with numerous examples from Dutch masters. Irina died in 2012 and was interred in the South Lawn section, lot 782 of West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Hillary died less than six months later at age 96 and was buried with his wife of 74 years. Their shared gravestone says, Irina Koprovska, M.D., 1917-2012, co-discovered the pap smear, saving millions of women around the world from uterine cancer. Hilary Koprovsky, M.D., 1916-2013, discovered the first oral polio vaccine, saving millions of children around the world. The last cases of locally acquired paralytic poliomyelitis caused by wild polio virus in the United States were reported in 1979 during an outbreak in Amish communities in several Midwestern states. Just last year, on 25 August 2020, Africa was officially certified as being free of wild polio virus. Cases have been reported in both Pakistan and Afghanistan. There were a total of 441 in 2020. But the childhood scourge of the early 20th century has been virtually eliminated from the planet thanks to the work of Kapravsky, Sok, and Sabin, whose three names should always be mentioned together. Next time in the June 2021 edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 28, It's Bad Science. Laurel Hill Cemetery holds the remains of Samuel George Morton, who's made the news lately because of the controversy over the thousand or so human skulls he collected in his studies of ethnology. George Robbins Glidden was a follower of Morton, whose public mummy unwrappings for profit and entertainment led to his downfall and an unusual burial. And John Ernst Worrell Keeley was a fraudster inventor who swindled millions out of investors for his interatomic ether machine. That's Bad Science next month on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's within an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. 
Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from April to October and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through March. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, skateboarders, photographers, bird watchers, nature buffs, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open for historic tours again, but with a limited number of participants who are willing to follow CDC recommendations for masks. And we still have some pay-what-you-wish virtual tours via Zoom. Find out more at thelaurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. Here's more to satisfy your curiosity. laurelhillcemetery.blog where you can read even more about interesting people. And if you follow us on Instagram, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And if that's not enough, check out the virtual tours that I've done on YouTube. Laurel Hill Cemetery, Hotspots and Storied Plots Virtual Tour Number 1 gives you an overview. And all bones considered, Laurel Hill Stories video podcast number one is on illustrator A.B. Frost and his family. The podcast number 22 on ornithologists and entomologists is also available as a video podcast on YouTube. Now, once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill cemeteries, and you will have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. We had a Shakespearean tour a couple of weeks ago that was members-only and quite memorable. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, a retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. I also invite you to listen to the radio show that I do for WPPM-FM in Philadelphia every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. East Coast time. I go back 60 years and read you some news stories while also playing jazz that was recorded that week. You can stream it from phillycam.org slash listen or from my website, joelex.xyz. Stick around if you want to hear the references that I use for this podcast. And until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. On Charles Eucharist de Medici Sijou, there's a nice biographical sketch in The Endocrinologist 2003. There's also a biographical sketch in Hypoadrenia, or a bit of Addison's disease, by R.B. Tattersall in Medical History, 1999, volume 43, pages 450 to 467. I also enjoyed some of Saju's articles, including the endocrine organs as a foundation for scientific medicine from the Proceedings of the American Philosophical Society, volume 66, 1927, pages 47 to 65, and his 1929 obituary in the Philadelphia Inquirer was also useful. Chevalier Jackson got a lot of publicity after publishing his autobiography in 1938, but the British Medical Journal, now simply known as the BMJ, 
published a nice summary called Chevalier Jackson and Endoscopy in Volume 2, number 3845, dated 15 September 1934. A fun read by Associated Press reporter Howard Blakesley made the rounds in 1936. One of the articles is entitled, Fishing for Pins is His Line. And a quasi-biography is also available, Swallow, Foreign Bodies, Inspirations, and the Curious Doctor Who Extracted Them, by Mary Capello, The New Press, 2011. For Hilary Kaprovsky, check out History of Polio Vaccine by Andebikus in the World Journal of Virology, Volume 1, Issue 4, dated 12 August 2012, pages 108 to 114, and History of Rabies Vaccine by Hicks, Fuchs, and Johnson, Clinical and Experimental Immunology, Volume 169, 2012, pages 199 to 204. Obituaries were also published in the Journal of Virology, Volume 87, number 15, August 2013, pages 82, 70, 71, and in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States, Volume 110, number 22, dated 28 May 2013, page 87, 57. For Irina Kaprovska, there's a nice biographical sketch at the website Changing the Face of Medicine, Celebrating America's Women Physicians. There's also a sketch by Lydia Pleotis Howell, M.D., called Remember My Mentor, Dr. Irina Kaprovsky, in Cancer Cytopathology, published 23 January 2013. Then there's her own book, which I could not find. It's called A Woman Wanders Through Life and Science. It was published in 1998. See you next time. Stay safe. Stay well.